and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've decided to join us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And this was a damn interesting week. So let's get started with our first link. First First link. link. Okay, from New Atlas, scientists have hacked fly brains to make them remote controlled. (laughs) Oh, Mm. okay, but is it like wireless or they're little like tethers hanging out of their heads? (laughs) (laughs) Not nearly as analog as you may fear, but perhaps more analog than you suspect. So, okay. The team started by genetically engineering the flies so that they expressed a certain heat-sensitive ion channel in some of their neurons. So basically, when this channel sensed heat, it would activate the neuron. And in this case, that neuron caused the fly to spread its wings, which is a gesture they often use during mating. Hmm. So this heat trigger we're talking about came in the form of iron oxide nanoparticles that were injected into the insect's brains. When a magnetic field is switched on nearby, those particles heat up, which cause the neurons to fire and the fly to adopt that spread wing pose. Jacob Robinson, an author of the study, said to study the brain or to treat neurological disorders, the scientific community is searching for tools that are both incredibly precise, but also minimally invasive. Although I'm not sure how minimally invasive injecting magnetic particles into the brain is. But anyway, (laughs) remote control of select neural circuits with magnetic fields is somewhat of a holy grail for neurotechnologies. And our work increases the speed of remote magnetic control, making it closer to the natural speed of the brain. So Hmm. what they're hoping to eventually get to with this is they're hoping they could restore sight to patients with vision impairments. They're thinking that by stimulating the visual cortex, they might be able to essentially bypass the eyes. Holy Jordy LaForge, Batman. (laughs) Similar techniques have already been used to control the movements of mice, which could lead to better treatments for mobility issues with their root causes in their brain. That being said, DARPA, who is funding the project, has different plans. Oh, of course. Ultimately, <laughs> right. Ultimately, DARPA wants to develop a headset that can read the neural activity in one person's brain and then write it to another brain, basically transferring thoughts or perceptions between people. Ooh. Yeah, a little spooky. <laughs> but, you know, that's the stretch goal. That's the brass wing. For now, we can make flies spread their wings on command. So if you want to see it, there's a video and even a source link to Rice University. So do the magnetic particles get filtered out? Like, do you have to have a constant re-upping on the injections? You know, I'm not sure. They mentioned that they're doing this on flies. Mm. And so long-term effects right, are probably right. <laughs> that's, that's not well off. understood. I'm <laughs> exactly. just thinking about like you get into a situation like, you know, you haven't re-upped on your magnetic shot recently. Mm-hmm. And so whatever mm-hmm. your Geordie LaForge glasses stop working. And <laughs> I just, well, yeah. maybe it could be something as simple. You know how they have those little iron fish that are popular yeah. in countries that have iron deficiency. You just boil an iron fish with your food and it leaks out some iron to give you that supplement. Yeah. Maybe that's the future, right? Go. We're all just kind of eating metal to make <laughs> things work. <laughs> Just to get us a little closer to cyborgs. Exactly. (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link. 
This article comes to us from BBC.com. It's titled, Eerie Glow in Sky Confuses Australian Town and Outs Cannabis Farm. Whoa, that's a lot in one headline. (laughs) Yeah. So, when a pink glow lit up the evening sky above an Australian town on Wednesday, local woman Tammy Zumoski wondered if the apocalypse had arrived. (laughs) And there's a picture here that has just a giant pink glow coming straight out of the ground from, like, very far away in the distance. It's actually very pretty, if it didn't look so horrifying without context. Right. But so, Tammy told the BBC, I was just being a cool, calm mum, telling the kids, there's nothing to worry about. But in my head, I'm like, what the hell is that? (laughs) It's the sinking of the Titanic. You're, like, reading the bedtime story to your kids. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And she says, mom's on the phone and dad's in the background going, I better hurry up and eat my tea because the world's ending, which I guess they say that in Australia. <laughs> and mom's like, what's the point of eating your tea if the world's ending? <laughs> uh, make sure you know who you're married to, I guess. <laughs> Another local Nike champion first thought it was a really bright red moon before realizing the light was originating from the ground. I was having a big Stranger Things moment. I'm like, Vecna, is that you? (laughs) She said, referencing the latest villain from the TV series. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And both women, to their amusement, were wildly off base. It turned out to be light emanating from a cannabis farm just outside the town of Mildura in northern Victoria. Medicinal cannabis was legalized in Australia in 2016, but recreational use of the drug is banned. Mm. Since then, some 260,000 prescriptions have been approved by Australian regulators for a variety of illnesses. The most common reason for the prescriptions was chronic pain, followed by anxiety and sleep disorders, according to data from the Australian Department of Health. The number of prescriptions approved has doubled since 2019, with the majority of applications coming from the state of Queensland. (laughs) But charges for possession remain high, with 71,151 people prosecuted for marijuana-related crimes in 2018-19. Few growing facilities exist, and their locations are top secret for security reasons, Mm. but the cat's out of the bag for this farm. Reddish-tinged lights are used to help the crop grow. Usually, Mm. blackout blinds come down at dusk. On Wednesday, they didn't work, a spokesman for manufacturer Can Group revealed. And because it was a cloudy night, the lights created a sunset on steroids <laughs> that could be spotted almost an hour from the facility. Wow. And, um, I had a follow-up thought, but it completely vanished from my mind. <laughs> was it because of marijuana? <laughs> yeah, yeah, apparently. I just got a contact high off the article. <laughs> well, it makes sense that, like, it wasn't an illegal farm. They were just keeping it secure for security purposes. Because I feel like if you had a giant illegal pot farm, you should maybe make sure the blinds work. Like, <laughs> it just feels like something you wouldn't want to leave automated and walk away from. You'd want to check. Yeah, but again, on brand. Maybe you just forgot. Yeah, you're Australian. Right, right. (laughs) (laughs) If you're Australian. I just meant if you're okay. All right. Right, right, right. (laughs) Six of one, half a dozen of the other. You know, that's fine. (laughs) Next link. Next link. All right. This next article comes from newatlas.com and it's called Mechanochemical Breakthrough Unlocks Cheap, Safe, Powdered Hydrogen. Why do we want powdered hydrogen? Oh, we will tell you. So (laughs) the first cool thing here is that the word mechanochemical is actually very new. It was only coined in 2019 to describe chemical reactions that are triggered by mechanical forces as opposed to heat, light, or electrical potential differences. So in this case, and in pretty much all cases since this process was discovered, the mechanical force is supplied by ball milling, 
which is a low-energy grinding process in which a cylinder containing steel balls is rotated such that the balls tumble around and crush the material inside. <laughs> so like a rabbit vibrator, but with chemicals in the pearls? <laughs> I was going to say a rock tumbler that children use, but you know what? <laughs> but apparently, a team at Deakin University's Institute for Frontier Materials in Australia, once again, has demonstrated that grinding certain amounts of certain powders with precise pressure levels of certain gases can trigger a mechanochemical reaction that causes the gas to absorb into the powder and stay there, essentially giving you a solid-state storage medium that can hold the gases safely at room temperature until they're needed. And this matters because separating raw gas mixtures is something that currently needs to happen every day in the petroleum industry. And the way they have to do it now is through cryogenics. Basically, they cool everything down to a liquid, and then they slowly warm it up again, siphoning off each gas separately as it hits its own evaporation point. But the Deacon team found that the same thing could be accomplished with the ball milling process because each gas requires a different milling intensity and gas pressure in order to be absorbed into the powder. So they put some clean powder in, they bang the balls around for a while with the right settings to catch a certain gas, then they pull out the powder that now holds that gas and put in a new batch of clean powder, change the settings, and separate out the next gas. And it sounds really tedious, and it is, but compared to cryogenics, it takes less than one-tenth of the energy. And cryodistillation mm. is a huge industry. Worldwide cryodistillation of just propene and ethene, which are used to make plastics, accounts for 0.3% of all energy consumption, which is greater than the entirety of Singapore. So cutting Whoa. that by more than 90% will make a noticeable dent. Wow. But it gets even better because a lot of these gases are not super stable the way we currently use them. Hydrogen, for example, must be stored at around 700 times the normal atmospheric pressure in gas form or else cooled to its liquid form at negative 423 degrees Fahrenheit. And both of these formats, A, take a lot of energy to accomplish, and B, tend to explode. But Ooh, when that same hydrogen is absorbed into boron nitride powder, it's completely stable at room temperature and can just hang out for as long as you want. Huh. So if you want to get the hydrogen back out of the powder, you do have to heat it up to a few hundred degrees. But the Deacon team says that this is still nothing compared to the energy we're already using to manipulate and transport hydrogen now. And once the hydrogen is released, the powder only loses a few percentage points of efficiency, which means it can be put back into the ball milling machine and used again and again. Ooh. So in terms of volume and weight, the powder obviously adds quite a bit. But as lead researcher Ian Chen points out, the tank in a tank of liquid hydrogen weighs relatively more. Gram for gram, most current methods of hydrogen storage are about 2 to 3 percent hydrogen, while their method is 6.5 percent. Mm. There are some cutting-edge, super lightweight liquid hydrogen tanks in development for the aviation industry that are up to 50% hydrogen by weight. But the catch is, of course, they are much more expensive, and airplanes are really the only place where weight matters that much more than money. So Chen says they can even imagine a scenario where the powder itself is not just a safe transport method, but a fuel with a heating element for the powder incorporated into an engine that converts it directly into hydrogen at the point of use. Which would be really cool, right, if we had cars on the road that weren't burning fossil fuels and mm -hmm. were running on hydrogen and weren't inherently flammable all the time. 
I'm just envisioning like putting powder into my gas tank yeah. and having that be like a much nicer process as well. I guess. I mean, I always feel like powder gets everywhere. It's like sand. You know, you get it all over your hands. That's true. But so does gas. I mean, when I go to the gas yep. station <laughs> and a little bit of that drips on my shoe, it's like, oh, well, that's mm-hmm. going to stink forever. You might as well just throw those <laughs> shoes away. <laughs> Next link. Next link. All right. We're going to take a departure in topic and time as Literary Hub takes us to a recipe. How trying to find a cure for scurvy led to the gimlet. Yum, yum, yum. Oh, I don't actually know what's in a gimlet. (gasps) Well. (laughs) Please tell me. (laughs) We're going to go straight into it. I will say the gimlet was long my drink of choice back Mm. when I was still drinking alcohol. And I used to host these Mad Men viewing parties Mm. where we would just make the booziest cocktails and gimlet was my signature. Mm. And I even used the product that is being described in here. So vitamin C, humans, guinea pigs, and some birds, and even fruit bats and primates We can't synthesize it, but it is still essential to our survival. So scurvy is the deficiency of vitamin C. It was long the scourge of both far-wandering sailors and location-locked soldiers who didn't have a balanced diet. So the preventative and treatment for scurvy was discovered and rediscovered several times throughout history, with citrus specifically prescribed as early as 1564. Hmm. Sea captains of lots of different countries understood that citrus prevented or cured scurvy, but their real-world wisdom was continually passed over in favor of some theory that usually fit in with Galenic medicine by physicians on the mainland. Mm -hmm. Oh, those ivory towers. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So they suspected causes of scurvy included maybe an excess of salt in the diet. They thought it might have been copper poisoning, poor ventilation, or moist air, that good old miasma. They thought it might have (laughs) been even due to dirty clothing, living conditions, lack of potassium, and parasites living on cockroaches, among other things. So scurvy, it sucks. If you have it, this is what's going to happen. You're going to get bleeding and swelling of the gums. Your breath is going to smell terrible. Mm. Your teeth and hair is going to fall out. You're going to get skin bruises, weak bones, reopening of old wounds. Hey, you might have hallucinations and blindness in the end. And, you know, because of all of this grossness, the running theory was that scurvy was a disease of putrefaction. People were thought to be rotting on the inside. So the proposed, and this is a word I'm going to struggle with, antiscorbutics, which are scurvy preventatives or cures, rice, beans, sulfuric acid, vinegar, molasses, chinchona bark, which I think is used to make quinine, opium, opium, (laughs) mercury, rhubarb, hops, juniper berries, seal carcass oil, something called scurvy grass, and especially gargling with urine, which probably didn't help with that whole foul breath issue. No. (laughs) Other ineffective treatments included purgatives, bleeding, sweating, bathing in animal blood, and surprisingly often, burial of a person up to the neck in sand. What fun! (laughs) So a lot of these cures centered on acidity, fermentation, or carbonation under the theory that they prevented putrefaction of the organs. 
Taking fixed air, as it was known, carbon dioxide, was suggested by one chemist who recommended that sailors should mix lime juice and sodium bicarbonate to be swallowed during the effervescence. Hey, they got the lime part right. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> so they did a bunch more studies to kind of find out what was going to work. It seems that citrus continues to outperform. But they don't look at it as a preventative so much as curative. So the British Navy did not implement citrus rations for several decades, even though we kept hitting upon the citrus thing over and over. Captain Cook got the closest, but it was mostly because he had better onboard living conditions on his ship and he made frequent stops for fresh food. But, you know, his favorite scurvy device was something called Joseph Priestley's soda water creating device with evaporated carrot juice and a poisonous mix of antimony and phosphate of lime. They oh. called it Dr. James's powder. But, you know, everybody is missing the fact that it's citrus. Mm. Finally, by the 1790s, some Royal Navy ships were officially outfitted with lemon juice as a scurvy preventative. It was served as a daily allowance with spirit, water, and sugar, or in a drink called a nagus with fortified wine in place of spirit. So finally, whew, we've identified citrus as a solution. But now we have a new problem, how to preserve the fruit or its juice on board ships already notorious for having spoiled beer and undrinkable water after a few weeks or months. One guy recommends a rob of lemons and oranges reduced over a fire to boil off the water. And this was meant to be rehydrated on board with water or alcohol. But they didn't realize that the heat of boiling actually destroys most of the vitamin C in the mm. juice, mm. and it deteriorates even more after storage at room temperature. Other methods they tried include mixing citrus juice into olive oil, brandy or rum, sometimes with added sugar. The latter would be, correct, a daiquiri, rum, lime, and sugar, if limes had been used rather than oranges and lemons. But surprisingly, limes were not the preferred citrus of the Navy until the mid-1800s. In both medical texts and drink recipes, there was a lot of confusion between lemons and limes. Not only are the names pretty close, but the green color of an unripe lemon looks a whole lot like a lime. Mm. <laughs> and the inability to identify which was which once squeezed. They both kind of are super sour, mm. right? And limes are more acidic than lemons and oranges, but they contain significantly less vitamin C than either one. Huh. And the commercially prepared reduced lime juice on board was relatively useless against scurvy. So this caused some physicians to even reverse their opinions about whether the whole citrus thing was effective at all, which is like, no, 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 you got the right thing. But so after <laughs> failed citrus attempts didn't work, incidents of scurvy started creeping up again. But sea voyages became faster with the introduction of steamships. And so scurvy started to go down again as people were able to get back to land and eat better food. So how do we get to like an actual product? Bringing it back. The Rose family of Leith, Scotland, was in the shipbuilding business and then later in the ship supplying business, but they pivoted again by 1871. The family company was called L. Rose and Company Lime Juice and Wine Merchants. So what happened was Lachlan Rose knew of the provisioning requirements of the time, which were lime juice and 15% Demerara rum provided in four gallon jars, but he didn't feel like sailors were getting the benefits of fresh lime juice. So around 1865, Rose had the idea to create a sweet juice drink for both sailors and the general public, a less medicinal and less boozy preparation than what was used on board. His trick was to employ sulfuric acid in an airtight container to preserve the juice. Then it was sweetened and bottled as Rose's Lime Juice Cordial. 
the company continued to diversify and they made lime marmalade, promoted gin and lime as a social drink, and the discovery that lime juice could act as a hangover cure, according to the book Limeys. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, later, the company produced rum shrub, ginger brandy, and orange quinine wine. Finally, they were acquired in 1957 by Schweppes, makers of tonic water and mineral water, which were both also used medicinally at first. So if you want to know how to make a gimlet, you can buy Rose's Lime Juice Cordial in pretty much any store today. And the ingredient was even immortalized in Raymond Chandler's 1953 book, The Long Goodbye, in which a character states what they call a gimlet is just some lime or lemon juice and gin with a dash of sugar and bitters. A real gimlet is half gin and half Rose's Lime Juice and nothing else. Hmm. It beats martinis hollow. All right. As for the name, we don't really know how the gimlet got its name. One theory is that it was named after a Captain Gimlet. The second is that the drink is named after a small tool to poke holes in casks. <laughs> okay. <Woo-hoo>. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> like, <laughs> why a small tool? And we're going to call this drink after that. That doesn't... I mean, yeah, I accept the it. the naming of... <laughs> Like, I mean, why do we it's, call a screwdriver a screwdriver? Because we do. I can, yeah, all right. I, I don't have much in the name, but I do have much in recommending if you do imbibe alcohol, Rose's Lime Juice Cordial. It is so good. <laughs> well, maybe You can I'll even do like a limeade with it if you were just to mix it with water or even sparkling water. Okay, I'm thirsty. Never yeah, mind. I do. I love a good limeade, so I'll give that a shot. Yeah. Okay, next link. Next, next link. link. This article comes to us from MyModernMet.com. It's titled, The Fascinating Story of Yaupon, or America's Lost Native Tea Tradition. Hmm. Mm. So in 2020, the United States imported $473 million worth of tea, mostly from Asia. But most people don't know that America actually has its own indigenous tea. In fact, many people in the Southeast United States grow this plant in their backyard without ever knowing that they are, in fact, growing tea. Yaupon tea is an herbal tea made from the leaves of the Yaupon holly. Related to yerba mate, Native Americans traditionally brewed this tea for its medicinal purposes. And as one of the few caffeinated plants native to the United States, one has to wonder why Yaupon tea hasn't garnered more attention. Mm-hmm. To understand that, we need to travel back in time. Mm-hmm. Yay! More tea? time-traveling drink articles! <laughs> <That's right. Yeah. laughs> tea has deep roots in the United States, and those roots began long before the Boston Tea Party. Yaupon was known as Casina by the Temucua tribe, and it was later dubbed Black Drink by the Spanish explorers because of its color. Prior to making important decisions, a special mixture of tea would be ingested in order to ensure that the mind was clear. By the time the English arrived in the United States, Yaupon tea was deeply ingrained in American culture. In fact, archaeologists have found residue of the beloved tea in a cup that dates back to 1050 CE. And this tea wasn't only sought after by indigenous people, it was a hot commodity. Yaupon was exported both to England and France, but was met with a difficult fate, all thanks to a name. When Scottish botanist William Aton selected a scientific name for Yaupon, he picked one that continues to have an impact on its usage. Elex vomitoria. <laughs> While Elex is the genus of the holly plant, vomitoria is exactly what you think. Yeah. <laughs> In actuality, there's no evidence that ingesting yaupon makes one vomit. Rude. Still, yeah, still, with the name in place, the damage was done. <laughs> and there's reason to believe that the name wasn't a simple error on Aton's part. Aton was actually the royal gardener, and as such, he was connected to Britain's upper echelon. These were the wealthy and elite of the empire, and at the center of the empire was the East India Company. 
Those connected to the East mm. India Company were likely worried about the North American export that threatened their monopoly on the tea market. Ugh, there you and go. to add insult to injury, Yaupon only grew natively in parts of the United States under Spanish and French control. Hmm. So the British had nothing to gain from its success. Mm-hmm. And what's more, botanist Carl Linnaeus, who founded the taxonomy we still use today, used the scientific name Ilex Cassina when referring to Yaupon. Mm-hmm. Still, in several editions of Aton's book, the vomit label persists, and eventually the British Empire threw its weight around to stamp out competition for tea, sugar, tobacco, and opium. Luckily, today there are producers who are looking to change the fate of the Yaupon tea and revive this important tradition. At the forefront of the movement is Yazoo Yaupon, which was started when a native Mississippian, Oliver Luckett, returned home and discovered that the decorative holly in his father's backyard was actually tea. Luckett then joined forces with the Yalpon Brothers American Tea Company to honor the heritage of the Mississippi Delta and make more people aware of what they already know. Yalpon is simply a better tea. Hmm. I want to try it. Yalpon Holly, right? That's the plant we're talking about? Yeah, Yalpon Holly or Elex Cassina. And it is a very small, almost berry-like looking sort of mm-hmm. plant that just hangs off the stem. Well, the reason it rang a bell for me is that I'm pretty sure it's a native plant here in Central Texas. It's one that's supposed to be drought resistant, has benefits to wildlife. So if you are really committed to giving this a taste, you could not be better situated to grow one. All right. Well, I'm going to make a gimlet with <laughs> a Yaupon tea. I'm going to have a flight. I'm going to have a flight of drinks. Yes. I'm try them all. And then I'm going to Damn interesting it. drinks. The podcast spinoff. Let's go. That's right. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. Well, I apologize in advance for this next title. Uh-oh. It comes from neuroscienceNews.com, and it's called Did Gonorrhea Give Us Grandparents? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I want to know the answer to this or not. (laughs) Yeah, well, it's certainly a theory. Anyway, uh, it's being put forth by researchers at the University of California, San Diego School of Medicine. So what happened was, for a long time, they've been researching the genetics behind dementia, Alzheimer's, and other neurological diseases of aging. And despite the fact that, you know, these diseases are very tragic and we'd love to find a cure for them, The reality is that actually humans get old better than any other species because most animals are optimized for reproduction. And once you can't do that anymore, you're kind of useless, evolutionarily (laughs) speaking. So, Mm. you know, men can keep making babies right up to the end, but human women live for decades past menopause, which just isn't efficient and makes no sense. And we're the only species who does it. Okay, red pillar. Look, I'm just reading. (laughs) (laughs) But so logic says there must be a benefit to it, right? And according to the, quote, grandmother hypothesis, it's because older women provide important support in raising infants and children who require more care than the young of other species. So, you know, they were thinking maybe that's why it happens. Maybe there's another reason. But what we do know for sure is how it happens. Because when researchers compared human and chimpanzee genomes, they found that humans have a unique version of the gene for CD33, which is a receptor expressed in immune cells. And Mm. the chain of events here gets a little complicated, but a normal CD33 receptor binds to something called sialic acid, which all human cells are coated with. And when the immune cell senses the sialic acid through the CD33 receptor, it recognizes the other cell as being part of your own body and doesn't attack it. So that's a good thing. But on the flip side, 
CD33 also appears on microglia, which are immune cells inside the brain. And this is a problem because their job is actually to clear away damaged brain cells. So if the CD33 receptors on the microglia are constantly saying, no, that's one of your own cells, which it is, then the microglia can't do their job. The damaged brain cells build up and you get dementia. But again, that's what happens in a normal CD33 receptor, which is to say the kind found in chimpanzees and other mammals. In humans, the researchers found that our CD33 receptor was different. It's more refined and is specifically able to tell the difference between healthy human cells and damaged human cells. So while we can still get dementia eventually, we actually get it much later than we would have if we were chimpanzees. Well, that's a relief. (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of nice. And in fact, this mutation is not even found in Neanderthals or Denisovans, our closest evolutionary ancestors. So it's like it popped on the scene and now we don't get dementia as early and they wanted to know why. Hmm. So they were trying to figure out where this evolutionary variant of the CD33 receptor came from in humans. And weirdly enough, They think now that the answer is gonorrhea. What? (laughs) Yes, because one of the special defense mechanisms of gonorrhea in particular is that it coats itself in sugars that mimic sialic acid so that CD33 won't recognize it as an intruder. But the mutated CD33 receptor that modern humans have can distinguish them. Basically, when chimps get gonorrhea, it is bad news for them. But when humans get it, they have a decent chance of getting better, right? Gonorrhea does not just kill us all in massive swaths, but it does for chimpanzees. Mm. And so the authors think, actually, the grandmother hypothesis has nothing to do with it. Like, grandmothers are great, but that's not why we have grandmothers. We just (laughs) evolved to survive gonorrhea. And as a purely coincidental side effect, we get to avoid dementia and live past menopause and meet our grandkids. So... You know, <laughs> yay gonorrhea? Like <laughs> what a leap. I mean, I'm I'm trying uh Yeah. I mean, and it's a theory. Like I said, they can't prove it. <laughs> They've just sort of said, look, this is one explanation. Cause what they know for sure is like this was a really hard evolutionary push. There had to be a reason why we suddenly developed this better CD33 receptor. And you know, <laughs> then you gotta ask, well, how come chimpanzees didn't evolve? You know, who knows? But yeah, that's their theory, is that we got this special CD33 receptor because of a massive gonorrhea plague that swept (laughs) through ancient humans. Wow. What doesn't kill us makes us stronger? Pretty much. That's (laughs) It's all side effects. All of the good things that we have in our bodies are just Mm. side effects that we got as a lucky benefit of not dying. Happy accidents, as Bob Ross might say. That's right. (laughs) And, you know, make sure you put that in your grandmother's birthday card. (laughs) (laughs) oh gosh a birthday card should never have the word happy accident in it or gonorrhea for that matter (laughs) (laughs) next link Next Next link. Good news, everyone. News Atlas is reporting that video games can enhance decision-making skills. Mm -hmm. You know, to be fair, we do spend a lot of attention on the negative effects of video games, right? If you do play too much, it can be detrimental because it could take time away from healthy behaviors like exercising, social activities, I don't know, getting enough sleep. Mm -hmm. But for several years, researchers have discovered that video games also have the capacity to generate a number of cognitive benefits. So this new study from researchers at Georgia State University, they used functional magnetic resonance imaging, or fMRI, to explore the effects that video game playing has on brain activity 
during decision-making tasks. Just under 50 young subjects were recruited for the study. 28 of them were classified as regular video game players, meaning they played more than five hours per week. And 19 were non-players, which Mm. means less than one hour of gaming. So inside the MRI machine, the participants completed a motion categorization task. And the task involved watching two sets of differently colored dots moving in opposite directions. So what they did is they would view the dots for two seconds, and then the subjects would have to immediately respond with what direction they thought one color of the dots were moving. They would have three seconds to respond before the task repeated. And the task was designed to help evaluate how quickly the brain can process sensory information and make a decision in response. Hmm. So from a straightforward behavioral perspective, the researchers found the video game players were more accurate in their answers and faster to respond compared to the non-gamers. But more interestingly, the brain imaging data indicated that the gamers also had different brain responses to the task and the node and network activities in and across the supplementary motor area and the thalamus. Mm. They're indicating that these findings raise the possibility of video games being used for cognitive training. Notably, a team from the University of Rochester tried something very similar about 10 years ago. That prior study used a number of non-gamers, split them into two groups. One group played 50 hours of first-person shooter games, and the other group played 50 hours of slower-paced strategy games. Then they took all those people to complete a number of tasks designed to measure their decision-making skills, and they found that the FPS first-person shooter folks were 25% faster to respond in the decision-making test compared to strategy gamers. And perhaps more surprisingly, the action-trained gamers were just as accurate in their responses. Mm. So it's not the case that action game players are trigger-happy and less accurate. They're just as accurate and also faster. So we're just kind of at the early horizon of this research. But take heart, mothers. You could be raising the next surgeon of, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Cut him a little slack. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, obviously, I know that the three of us are all on the same same side of the room on this. Like, I, our generation had to grow up and be in charge now. Like that, people never change their minds. They just get old and die, and the next oh generation comes up. Like that's honest to God. Like that's what happens. Nobody ever changes their mind on anything. It's I refuse to believe that, up. but well, I guess that would be me not changing my mind. There oh, you dear. go. Yeah. Oh, dear. Yeah. <laughs> oh boy. I'll do the best we can possibly do in this scenario and remain neutral. There you go. Right, yeah. I'm not going to change my mind about that either. All right. The status quo endures. <laughs> Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from TheGuardian.com, and it's titled Experience. I was attacked by a wild boar while surfing. What? Uh. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So just in case you thought you were safe from the boars in the ocean, (laughs) it is not true. All right. (laughs) So this is written in the first person by a woman named Ingrid Siepel, who's sharing her experience. So. I have always loved being in the ocean. As a toddler, I swam before I walked. My dad was a Navy SEAL and would take me body surfing on his back near our home in Kailua, Hawaii, where I now live again one block from the water. I went to university in California and surfed there. Longing for adventure, I bought a truck and started driving south, settling in Costa Rica, where I started a women's surf camp. A decade later, I returned to Hawaii for a master's in linguistics and to work as a massage therapist and personal trainer and to continue surfing, which took me to Mexico, 
Fiji, Tahiti, Australia, New Zealand, and Indonesia. One day in December 2021, I drove out at dawn to Mokuliea Beach on Oahu's North Shore. I began surfing the waves, then saw something floating towards me. I wondered if it was a seal, but it looked stiff. <laughs> Suddenly, it lifted its head out of the water. I was eye to eye with a wild boar only 1.5 meters from me. What? It was shocked, and so was I. <laughs> it had a bloody face as if it had been attacked, the Aww. longest snout with tusks like a baby mastodon and a look <sighs> of desperation. Aww. I was afraid, and more than that, surprised. What was it doing here? It started piggy paddling towards me with all its might. I turned to paddle away, but its face was at my foot. I got off my board and placed it between us as a safety barrier. The pig pulled itself up and took a chunk out of the board with its teeth. <gasps> there was a giant bite mark that could have been me. The last <sighs> I saw of the boar, it was swimming out to sea, but Aww. I still needed to get out of the water because the blood from its face could invite a feeding frenzy from bigger animals. Oh my god! I paddled to the peak. <laughs> I paddled to the beach where I discovered its tracks alongside those of hunting dogs. It looked as though it had been chased out into the ocean. On the beach, a surfer known as Surf Trivia Guy <laughs> asked to record an interview with me. It was picked up by news channels and circulated around the world. I didn't dwell on what had happened too much, but understood why others were intrigued. It was fun to see my interview translated into different languages. I wasn't too traumatized. I don't consider it to be my most shocking encounter in the ocean. Three years ago, while swimming off Namatu Island in Fiji, I was stung by an Irukanji jellyfish among the deadliest creatures in the ocean with venom a mm. hundred times stronger than a cobra. I had to pull its tentacles off my face and was <gasps> taken to hospital by helicopter. Wow. Yeah. In 2000, I was stung by a stingray in Mexico, and in 2002, I dodged a venomous sea snake in Costa Rica. Despite all the near misses, I can't get enough of the ocean. No there are kidding. days when Yeah. <laughs> there are days when the water near home is a brilliant, clear aquamarine with purple coral visible. It's beautiful and always surprising. I surf three times a week if I can. A few dangerous or painful encounters hardly seems a bad price to pay for extraordinary experiences. Uh -huh. If I were to have died on one of my adventures, I feel I would have died well. My love of the ocean will always be greater than my fears. Uh, wow. You know what this sounds like? The ocean creatures are trying to kill her. They've all failed. Now they're hiring, like, outside assassins. <laughs> they're like, we you know, can't get it done. Get the boars involved. Like you say that and you joke, but there have been cases recently of whales and sea lions destroying a lot of boat property and harassing mm. boaters uh, as if there is some sort of trend of them being like, we have had enough. Sure. Whoa. And, you know, they could be like, a, like an alliance going on with the boars. The boars aren't fans <laughs> of us, for sure. <laughs> Yeah. I, I still feel for him, though. I mean, he was harassed by dogs only to yeah. go out into the sea to try to defend himself still and probably drown. Oh, little boar boar. He got a nice chunk of surfboard for his... No, problems, no. <laughs> he didn't want to eat it. He was just trying to defend himself. Poor thing was probably scared. Oh. <laughs> well, he is ocean bacon now, I suppose. Yeah. If, if, yeah, with a bleeding face, he's shark food. That's what oh, he is. Oh, gosh. Well, the <laughs> circle of life continues. <laughs> all right. Well, that is all we have time for this week. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include The Criminologist on Trial for Serial Arson, why motion capture is harder than it looks, and web data reveals groundbreaking images of potentially habitable star system. So all that and more, plus everything we talked about today, can be found on damninteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. 
In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.